Well, good morning to each one of you. And it's good to be here at Northern Idaho Regional Camp Meeting. This, today is the first day I have ever set foot in the state of Idaho. So I feel privileged to be here with you. I flew into Spokane last night and spent the evening with Pastor Larry Kirkpatrick, who I was friends with from back in our time in Southern California when I was at Loma Linda, and he was the pastor of the Mentone Church, and I know he pastored here at Bonners Ferry until pretty recently. And he's going to a meeting in California this weekend, so I at least got to see him last night. But it's good to be here, and I think the Lord has some great things in store for this camp meeting. I know he's already blessed, and he's going to continue to bless as we go through this week. So before we start, I would like to offer a word of prayer, and we're going to get into our message for this morning. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the opportunity to come before your people. And I pray that as we listen to the word today, that you would give me that which you would have me to speak, and that Christ would be lifted up, and that our hearts would be convicted of the necessity of following Jesus completely. So I pray that you will speak through me in a special way this morning, and I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The title for our message this morning is Our Great and Urgent Need. And when I look at the world we are living in today, friends, you have to be in a spiritual coma to not realize that we are living in momentous times. When you look at what's happening in the world with what the Pope is doing and what the United States is doing, and when you look at what's happening within God's remnant church, friends, we are a church in crisis. Don't try to sugarcoat it and act like nothing is going on. We are a church in crisis. And the general conference session is starting three weeks from today. And now more than ever, we as God's people need to be serious about our walk with Jesus. It's not enough to know what's right to be facing the final crisis. Because, friends, we are facing a final crisis of this earth's history. And I'm not here to predict any dates or set any times, but I am saying that the Bible tells us, and the spirit of prophecy clearly shows us, that a final crisis is coming upon this world, and we need to be ready to meet that crisis. And it's not enough to know what is right theologically anymore. We need to have a living experience with Jesus as we face this final crisis. And the very fact that we're just three weeks away now from what is shaping up to be the momentous general conference session in my lifetime, and I suggest that it's probably the most momentous general conference session in any of your lifetimes. Some of you are older than I am, but I can almost guarantee you that we've never seen anything like this before since 1888, maybe 1901, but none of us were around back then. That's 
leads me to the following statement, well known from Great Controversy, page 494, where Ellen White says, before the final visitations of God's judgments upon the earth, there will be a revival of primitive godliness, such as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. Friends, the future of Adventism is a revival of primitive godliness. It's not continuing in Laodiceanism. And sometimes when I look at the church today, it's as if when we come to a crisis, some of us are trying to maintain a Laodicean unity. Yet when I read the Bible, which says everything that can be shaken will be shaken, so that which cannot be shaken will remain. Friends, a shaking is coming, and I would prayerfully urge you to be praying that God's people will rise up to meet this crisis head on rather than trying to go around it. And that we will face it with a revival of primitive godliness because that is the future of Adventism. The future of Adventism is not continuing in a conformity of, to, to the worldly culture around us and saying all is well. That is not the future of this church before Jesus comes back. The future of this church before Jesus comes back, the church that goes through to the coming of Jesus is a church that experiences a revival of primitive godliness like we have not seen since the days of the apostles. And that leads us then to our another f- famous statement from Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 121, because the future is a revival of primitive godliness. Ellen White now tells us our great need. A revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. To seek this should be our first work. Now, I happen to be a physician, and if, and, well, and thankfully, as a neurologist, I don't have to do codes where people are having their hearts compressed or whatever to bring them back to life. That's not something that I particularly enjoy doing, although I have done it in my training. But if you are called to revive a patient, it's because they've died. There's no life. And I've actually seen the monitor where the patient's heart had stopped and we pushed epinephrine and other medication and we're doing chest compressions and that heart started beating again and we had brought them back to life. We had revived them. And when Ellen White says a revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all of our needs, you know what that means? It means that we're spiritually dead as a church. We say that we're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and we don't really understand or know that we're actually wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. This revival of true godliness that we need is evidence of our lukewarm Laodicean condition. To seek this should be our first work. There must be earnest effort to obtain the blessing of the Lord, not because God is not willing to bestow his blessing upon us, but because we are unprepared to receive it. God is not going to pour out his spirit on people who are not ready to receive his spirit. 
we want to follow Jesus. We want to be his disciples. We want to experience revival. But there are conditions to receiving this revival. One of the conditions is that there must be an earnest effort to obtain this blessing. If you think that you're going to receive this revival of true godliness while you're sitting around in your Laodicean atmosphere of Adventism, coming to church on Sabbath morning, and then the rest of the week having five minutes of devotions with the Lord, and maybe not even that, and you're consumed by your job and the cares of this life and the entertainment that this world is offering, that is not the earnest effort that God calls upon to pour out his spirit. And yet, I would dare say that that is where many of us as Seventh-day Adventists are at in our spiritual walk with God. God wants to pour out his blessing upon us, but if we're not earnestly seeking him to receive it, he can't give it to us. Continuing in the statement, it says, Our Heavenly Father is more willing to give his Holy Spirit to them that ask him than our earthly parents to give good gifts to their children. But it is our work. Now, here are four conditions to receiving this blessing that will, re that will lead to a revival of true godliness. But it is our work by confession, humiliation, repentance, and earnest prayer to fulfill the conditions upon which God has promised to grant us his blessing. A revival need be expected only in answer to prayer. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about these four elements of confession, humiliation, repentance, and earnest prayer. Now, I will tell you, me personally, as I see the general conference coming up in the next three weeks, and I will be attending in person, not as a delegate, but as an interested church member, that I am under conviction more than ever that I need to make sure that my life is right with God. You know, if you're just going to San Antonio, whether you're going to be there in person or watching from afar, and hoping that the vote will go the way you hope that it will go, and you're not seeking God earnestly to make sure that your heart is right with him, then whatever way the vote goes, it's not going to do you personally any good. And the question is, are you spending time with God in prayer every day in confession? And are you humbling yourself before him? Are you coming to God with repentance and earnest prayer? Just starting off with confession. When you come to God to confess in your prayer life, you know, Ellen White says in Steps to Christ that confession should be of a specific nature, confessing specific sins. When you come to God in prayer, do you say, Dear Lord, please forgive me for my sins. Please help me to do better. That's just being vague. And look, I've done it. I'm giving that illustration because that's what I've done. But when you come to God in prayer, what God is looking for, he's saying, he's looking for us to say, God, 
you are calling me to have a revival of true godliness in my life. Please forgive me when I raised my voice at my wife today when she said something that made me irritated. Please forgive me for raising my voice at my children or when I did this at work or when I said something about that brother or sister at church that I shouldn't have said. It was gossip. And you know, I've had to go back to people where I've said something about someone else and said, you know what, please forgive me. I said something about brother or sister so-and-so that I should not have said. That is the kind of confession that God is looking for, not just, oh, please forgive me for my sins in a generic sense, but we confess to God specifically of a specific nature, the specific sins that we have committed as the Holy Spirit convicts our hearts. Because if you're just confessing in a general vague way, you're not necessarily acknowledging the things that you are struggling with the most at this point in your life. And if you, if you just say, oh, please forgive me for my sins, you're acknowledging, yes, I'm a sinner and I need God's grace, but you're not allowing the grace of God to come into your heart to transform that area of your life that needs to change so that you'll stop gossiping about that brother or sister at church or so that you'll stop snapping at your wife every time she does something that annoys you, that the, the Spirit of God can transform you so that because you've confessed that sin, the next time you're tempted to commit it, you recall how the Holy Spirit prompted you to confess that sin last time and God gives you his grace to overcome it the next time it comes around. But if you're not confessing it, then you're going to keep falling into it every time. So it is our work by confession humiliation, repentance, and earnest prayer. And I might add, not only do we need to come to God in confession, but you know what? I would suspect that there are some of us here this morning who need to make some wrongs right with our brothers and sisters at church or even in our families. There's people that come to church that haven't talked to each other for weeks or months or years because of something that happened at a church board meeting or a business meeting or however the vote landed, and now we have sides in the church, and I'm on this side and they're on that side, and we don't look at each other when we come to church. Do you think you're going to be doing that in the kingdom of heaven? Don't kid yourself. The Holy Spirit wants to touch our hearts now so that we will confess among ourselves. Not only do we confess, but it says it's our work by confession, humiliation. Point number two, humiliation. How do you come to God in prayer? When you approach God, are you acknowledging him as the God of the universe? as your creator and your savior. You know, a lot of times when we come to God in prayer, it becomes so easy to develop a routine in our prayer life that we forget the need for humiliation as we come to God in prayer. And certainly when you're confessing, that requires humility. And when you're confessing to God, I hope you're not saying, well, God, please forgive me for how I said this, but if they hadn't caused me to do this, I never would have done it in the first place. That's not humility. 
You know, the closer that we come to God, the more sinful we appear in our own eyes. And so when you look at like the publican and the sin, and the, the Pharisee in the temple, the Pharisee saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like this. Yet the publican is saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God says, that's the one who went to his house justified. And it's interesting, you know, people can say, well, there's different camps in the church. There's liberals, there's conservatives, whatever it may be. And yet, even within those camps, it's interesting. You know, people say, oh, they're judging me, or no, they're judging me. But how do you pray when you come to God? Do you come to God and say, God, I thank you that I'm not like those people over there that are eating that food at Pollock that they shouldn't be eating. I'm so thankful that I have it all figured out. Now, th- thank God if you're following the health message. I believe in it. But is that how you approach God? And then on the other hand, you have maybe the other side saying, God, I thank you that I'm not judgmental like those people are. And yet you're doing the same thing. So when we come to God, seeking that true revival of godliness that we so desperately need, we need to be in a spirit of confession that confesses sins of a specific nature, asking God to give us victory over those specific sins, not in a generic sense, but in a specific sense. And as we come to him, we are humbling ourselves before God. We aren't coming to God like the Pharisee saying, God, I thank you that I have the theology of ordination figured out, and I'm not like that camp over there. And you realize that both camps are doing that right now? It's good to have it figured out, and I believe there is a truth to it, but don't be like the Pharisee that says, God, I thank you that I'm not like them. You should be saying, God, be merciful to meet a sinner. And then point number three, repentance. So confession, humiliation, repentance. Repentance is a turning away from and a genuine sorrow for sin. You know, a lot of times as God's people, we confess our sin and we claim the promise if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And yet as the great evangelist C.D. Brooks says, sometimes we walk away from sin hoping that it will catch up to us as we walk away from it. That's not repentance. Let me take you to Psalms 51 and the great prayer of David, the psalmist David, as he is confessing to God his great sin after he went into Bathsheba. In verse 1 of Psalms 51, he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according unto the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. So here's a genuine confession, humiliation, and repentance. And in verse 4, he says, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And then he says that you might be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge. Now, what is David saying when he says, God, that you might be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge? And the Apostle Paul quotes this in Romans 3, verse 4. This is what David is saying, and he's a man after God's own heart. He's saying, God, I am asking you to forgive me. 
and I am praying that you will cleanse me from this sin so that my heart will turn away from this sin. Because God, when you say that I am forgiven, when you say that I am justified, my life needs to give evidence to your clearing of my name so that your name will be clear. David, as he is confessing his sin, as he is humbling himself before God, and as he is repenting, he is saying, God, I have sinned against you, and I am asking that you will cleanse me from this sin so that I will turn away from it, so that as the onlooking universe sees that you have cleared my name, they will see that my life has changed so that your name will be clear. Do you come to God like that when you confess your sin? When you confess the sin that you have committed, whatever it may be, are you saying, God, when you forgive me, may there please be clear evidence that my heart has changed because I want your name to be clear when you speak. That's David, a man after God's own heart. And so in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, when Paul says, Let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. In verse 26 of the same chapter, he says that, that, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. In other words, God is just to justify us when we have the same spirit as David, when we say, God, when you forgive me, may your name be clear when you speak on my account. That is genuine confession, genuine humiliation, genuine repentance. And yet I'm afraid that so many of us view God as like an, a, a, a forgiveness infusion pump where we just say, God, keep forgiving me, keep forgiving me, keep forgiving me. And we're not realizing that every time we sin against him, we are dishonoring his name. And when we see Jesus for who he really is, when we, ha when we have the experience of David as he repented, who is a man after God's own heart in his repentance, we will say, God, may your forgiveness lead to a change in my life that will lead to the clearing of your name in the judgment. So we have confession, humiliation, repentance, and earnest prayer. What is your prayer life like? Do you really know Jesus? You know, in June of 2015, it's extremely late in Earth's history to not know Jesus in your prayer life. Now is the time more than ever to make sure that you know Jesus and that you are seeking him with your whole heart earnestly when you're praying to him, that as you're confessing your sin, and as you're humbling yourself before God, and as you're repenting, and as you're claiming God's promises as you pray to him, that you're praying earnestly and seeking him with your whole heart, which goes right to our scripture reading in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, which says, If my people which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray. Are we called by God's name? 
We are God's remnant church. We are his denominated people that he has chosen above all the people on this earth. And in the verses preceding it, it talks about if the heaven be shut up that there is no rain. Friends, we've been living in the time of the latter rain since Jesus went into the most holy place and the opportunity for that latter rain to be poured out came to this church in 1888. And yet from that day till this, we are still waiting for that latter rain to be poured out. And God is saying, if my people... My Seventh-day Adventist people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Notice those are the same things that Ellen White tells us that we need to be doing. Confession, humiliation, repentance, earnest prayer. The heaven has been shut up. The latter rain has not been poured out. And yet we as God's people have been satisfied to live here in this wilderness of this earth for so many years. Are we seeking God earnestly? And are we churning from our wicked ways? You know, the General Conference has called for 100 days of prayer leading up to this General Conference session. Have you been earnestly seeking God for the outpouring of his spirit in your life during this time? Or do you just see it as another bureaucratic church program that's not going to change anything? Do you realize that God can work through his people who say, here's 100 days of prayer? Maybe the apostles took 10 days to pray, and if we want to see Jesus come, we're going to take 100 days. We're going to do it 10 times longer. Have you been participating? Have you been taking advantage of the opportunity to join in the corporate body around the world to earnestly pray to the Lord for the outpouring of his Holy Spirit? Because I... As I said at the beginning of this message, friends, these are no ordinary times. And if we want to see Jesus come in our lifetime, I believe that now is a moment of opportunity as we come to this general conference session that if we as God's people are praying earnestly that the Lord will do a marvelous thing at that session and begin to pour out his spirit in a way that we have never seen before in this church. Amen. But if we're just sitting back and saying, oh, that's a nice church program. Let's see what happens in San Antonio. I'm going to do my two minutes of devotions with God today and I'll have a half-hearted prayer and hopefully he'll bless me. You're not going to get the blessing. Now is the time to be earnestly seeking God in prayer. Confession, humiliation, repentance, earnest prayer. These are the things that we as God's people so desperately need at this time. And then continuing on, I'm going to skip a, a couple of paragraphs where she says, this is page 122 of Selective Messages, volume 1. There are persons in the church who are not converted and who will not unite in earnest prevailing prayer. I hope that we aren't that, that we would not qualify for that characterization. I pray that each one of us here, that if you haven't been uniting an earnest prevailing prayer before you came to this camp meeting, that as you leave this camp meeting, you're going to unite with God's people around the world in earnest prevailing prayer. Then she says, we must enter upon the work individually. Look, you can't rely uh, upon church leaders or your pastor or your elders to do this work for you. You must enter this work with God individually. 
We must pray more and talk less. Iniquity abounds, and the people must, ta- must be taught not to be satisfied with a form of godliness without the Spirit and power. Are you satisfied with a form of godliness? Look, God is looking for a revival of true godliness among his people, where we will not be satisfied with a form of godliness, where not only will there be revival, but there will be reformation. A lot of times we talk about revival and we forget to talk about reformation. Now, on the other hand, sometimes I hear people talk about reformation and they leave out revival. But let me read to you. This is Review and Herald, February 25, 1902. It's also found on Last Day Events, page 189. A revival and a reformation must take place under the ministration of the Holy Spirit. Revival and reformation are two different things. Revival signifies a renewal of spiritual life, a quickening of the powers of mind and heart, a resurrection from spiritual death. Reformation signifies a reorganization, a change in ideas and theories, habits and practices. Reformation will not bring forth the good fruit of righteousness unless it is connected with the revival of the Spirit. Revival and reformation are to do their appointed work, and in doing this work, they must blend. So this is a blended work of revival and reformation. And notice, when revival comes to God's church, there is going to be a change in ideas and theories, as well as in habits and practices. And I'm sorry, friends, but there needs to be some changes of ideas and theories in our church. I mean, when we as a church are accepting more and more the ideas and theories from outside of the remnant, And then we allow the ideas and theories of Babylon to then shape the habits and practices of Adventism. There needs to be a reformation. And the reason why there hasn't been a reformation is because we're dead spiritually and we're content to have the ideas and theories of Babylon driving and shaping the culture of the church we live in today. And friends, that's got to change. That's why there's so much controversy in the church today because... In many respects, we don't even realize now that we've allowed the ideas and the theories from outside to come into the church, and so we think that we're following the Bible, and we really even aren't. As the Spirit of God is poured out upon his people, our ideas and theories will change. And when your ideas and theories change, and when we come back to the, the idea that has driven the Protestant Reformation and has driven the Adventist Church, which is the last remaining Protestant Church, truly, that we live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, and we say, show me from the Bible. And when we say... What does the Bible say? We follow the example of Jesus who said, it is written. Who also said, what is written in the law? Jesus never said, it is not written. Jesus never said, what is not written in the law? What can you read into it? 
We live by every word that proceeds by the mouth of, of God. And so as God's people experience revival, which, is, which comes from earnestly seeking God in a spirit of confession, humiliation, repentance, and earnest prayer in your daily walk with Jesus, this then allows the Holy Spirit to convict your conscience of the things that need to change in your life. Let me give you a little personal testimony. I mean, I've grown up Seventh-day Adventist. I was baptized when I was eight years old, and I've never regretted that decision. I've always believed in the three angels' messages and in the Adventist message. And when I went to Loma Linda, I was part of ministry out there and got very involved in um, a group called Advent Hope and some other things. And I was also going through medical school and then I did a neurology residency. And when you especially hit residency, your life becomes very complicated and very busy. And without realizing it, it becomes harder to live the health message. And not that I was doing terrible things, it was just that I wasn't following all of the health principles the way that I should have. And I developed bad habits. And when Ellen White talks about most of us would do well to live on two meals a day, I figured that that didn't apply to me. Well, six, seven, eight years after residency's over, I woke up one day and realized, you know what? I'm 30, 40 pounds overweight. Something's got to change. And by the grace of God, my family, we decided that we were going to change how we did our meals. And look, we were eating healthy food. It wasn't like we were... You can eat organic, vegan, healthy food and still be overweight. And so we decided to cut out the third meal. And I found that I've done just as well. I'm not hungry. I do just as well on two meals a day as I did on three. And I've lost 30 pounds in the last six months, and I haven't gone on a fad diet. All I did was cut out the third meal and start exercising in the evening. Now, that's just a, an illustration. And I heard Bro Brother Brackett talking about the health message about some of those things this morning, which is very important. I hope you keep coming to hear him. But that's an illustration of where a reformation needed to take place in my life. God's given us the counsel. There's no need, there was no need for me to be overweight. It was through a series of bad habits based on choices that I had made that caused me over a series of years to put on extra weight to the point that I needed to change or I was going to become obese and not in good health. And by the grace of God, he's helped me to make that change. That's a simple illustration of other things that need to change in our lives as well, because we're not just carrying around physical weight. Many of us are carrying around baggage spiritually that needs to be put away. There's things in our lives that are weighing us down, and we claim to be 
on our way to the kingdom of God, and yet we're spending more time in the TV and the internet, and we're not spending our time in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. And let me tell you, friends, if we're serious about Jesus coming soon, we wouldn't be watching the TV shows and the games and all of those things that are out there. We would be in the Word studying, and not only that, we would be sharing what we've learned with people around us. That's what revival and reformation leads to. It leads to a change of ideas and theories that leads to a change of habits and practices so that if you really thought that Jesus was coming soon, would you be consumed with the cares of this life and the entertainment of this life or would you be earnestly seeking God in prayer and devotion and pleading that he would cleanse your life of sin and that you would study his word to understand his will and to understand what's going to be happening before he comes back so that you can share this message with as many people around you. Because if we say that we're Seventh-day Adventists who believe in the three angels' messages to take this to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, well, what are you doing about it? Watching TV? That's not fulfilling the Gospel Commission. And that's where a revival and a reformation needs to take place among Adventists, where there needs to be a change of habits and practices Because in so many ways we become like the world around us and we've assimilated to their culture rather than calling them out of the culture they need to come out of. Now Ellen White said something very important that I want to point out in that statement that I read. And she said, we must be taught not to be satisfied with a form of godliness without the spirit and power. Now that is coming from 2 Timothy chapter 3, this form of godliness. And I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Here we read, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded. Now, when you look at that so far, we say, wow, in the last days it's going to be perilous. And you see all this description of these people, and then you keep reading, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, and you're like, yeah, that's the world around us. They're just, there's so many selfish people, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, those that disobey their parents, those who are fierce, those that tell lies, those who love the pleasures of this world. And Paul is saying it's going to be dangerous just before Jesus comes back. But then when you read the next verse, verse 5, it says, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. In other words, Christians, professed Christians, just before Jesus comes back, will have a form of godliness, but they will lack the power of God. They will lack the revival of true godliness, and they're going to be just like the world around them, so that God's people actually love the pleasures of this world more than they love God. And then in verse 7, it says, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Is that not true more than ever? Where we're studying and studying and 
digging and whatever, but learning but not coming to the knowledge of the truth because Jesus is the truth. And if your life is not in harmony with Jesus, you are not going to be led to the knowledge of the truth in your searching of the scripture. You're going to study scripture to try to prove your point rather than to get to know Jesus and his truth. Like I said, we are living in serious times, perilous times, because the church, just before Jesus comes back, has taken on the character of the world. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, disobedient to parents, covetous, selfish, boasters, proud. This is a clear indication of a spiritually dead church that is in need of revival of true godliness, of a revival of primitive godliness, and of turning away from this form of godliness. I'm going to read one more statement from Sister White, and this is Testimonies, Volume 1. Speaking of a group of people traveling the broad road. This is Testimonies, Volume 1, page 128. I saw many traveling in this broad road who had the words written upon them, dead to the world, the end of all things is at hand, be ye also ready. Now think about this. On your garments, what she's saying, you have a group of people written on their garments, the words dead to the world. The end of all things is at hand. Be ye also ready. These are Adventist friends. Their garments proclaim that Jesus is coming soon. And their garments proclaim that they are dead to the world. But she goes on and she says, They looked just like all the vain ones around them, except a shade of sadness, which I noticed upon their countenances. Their conversation was just like that of the gay, thoughtless ones around them. But they would occasionally point with great satisfaction to the letters on their garments, calling for the others to have the same upon theirs. They were in the broad way, yet they professed to be of the number who were traveling the narrow way. Those around them would say, There is no distinction between us. We are alike. We dress and talk and act alike. In other words, this is the thing that startles me. Ellen White saw a group of Seventh-day Adventists who had the profession of being dead to the world and of occasionally pointing to the fact that Jesus is coming soon, yet in reality they were no different than the world around them. Friends, now is the time to be searching our hearts. Now is the time to be making sure that we are not a fulfillment of that prophecy. Now is the time to be making sure that we have a living experience with Jesus where we truly are dead to the world. And that when the garments are written on our letters, or when the letters are written on our garments, that the end of all things is at hand, be ye also ready that we have that experience. And then she goes on in this statement, and this is where I'm going to segue into the last point of our message. 
I saw that many who profess to believe the truth for these last days think it strange that the children of Israel murmured as they journeyed, that after the wonderful dealings of God with them, they should be so ungrateful as to forget what he had done for them. Said the angel, ye have done worse than they. I saw that God has given his servants the truth so clear, so plain, that it cannot be resisted. Wherever they go, they have certain victory. Their enemies cannot get round the convincing truth. Light has been shed so clear that the servants of God can stand up anywhere and let truth, clear and connected, bear away the victory. So while the church is steeped in this form of godliness, and while we have in many ways been like the children of Israel murmuring and complaining whenever things go wrong and we have this form of godliness and we've been lacking in faith, what the servant of the Lord tells us is that God has given us truth so clear and so plain that it cannot be resisted. And if we give this message, it will lead to certain victory, which is what my burden is for the Seventh-day Adventist church at this late date of Earth's history. As we face perhaps the greatest crisis that this church has seen in decades. Now is the time for God's servants to stand up and to proclaim the convincing truth that is clear and connected that will lead to the victory of Adventism so that this ship can go through all the way to the kingdom. And that message that God sent to this church so many years ago, and I'm just going to give a brief nutshell, is a message of justification by faith that leads to the outpouring of the latter rain and to the proclamation of the loud cry just before Jesus comes back. This message, Ellen White says in Review and Herald, April 1890. Several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message, and I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. The prophet declares, and after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. Brightness, glory, and power are to be connected with the third angel's message, and conviction will follow wherever it is preached in demonstration of the Spirit. So notice this, justification by faith is is the third angel's message in verity. And when God's people experience it, the latter rain is going to be poured out so that the loud cry will be given and brightness, glory, and power will follow it and conviction will follow wherever it is preached in the spirit. That's what Adventism needs today. Why is justification by faith so powerful. You realize that it's more than just a legal declaration? Because if justification was merely a legal declaration, then what Ellen White says in this statement wouldn't make sense. But what she's showing us in this statement is that justification by faith is a legal declaration that leads to a demonstration of the righteousness of Christ that will lighten the earth with its glory. When you look at the message of justification by faith in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why? For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. It doesn't say declared. It says revealed. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Here's what Paul is saying. Here's why the gospel is so powerful. And that word power is dunamis, which is similar to dynamite. 
The gospel is powerful like dynamite because when you have faith, the righteousness of God is revealed in your life, not simply declared. And when it is revealed in your life, and as you're growing in your faith experience from faith to faith, you then have the experience of justification by faith. The just shall live by faith. And the powerful thing about this is in the book of Habakkuk chapter 2, you see this vision of write the vision, make it plain upon tables, that he may run that readeth it. As the second advent movement is raised up by that vision where the 2300 days is written on those tables, and there's the tarrying time, and then Jesus goes into the most holy place. The very next verse in Habakkuk 2 shows that the just will live by faith when Jesus goes into the most holy place, which shows us that justification by faith faith is connected to the cleansing of the sanctuary from sin. And when God's people are cleansed from sin, they experience justification by faith. And as they experience justification by faith, and as we experience being cleansed from sin, God can pour out his spirit upon us so that his righteousness will be revealed through the second advent movement. And it's interesting in, in Romans 1, 16 and 17, when it says the just shall live by faith, that Greek word just is dikaios. And it's the same word used to describe Christ in Acts chapter 3, 14, Acts 7, 52, and, and then in um, Romans 7, 12, the law is described as just. Jesus was just or righteous. And when you live by faith, you live the righteous life of Christ by faith. That's righteousness by faith. And what Adventism is lacking right now is true godliness, true godlikeness, which is righteousness, which is righteousness by faith which is the righteous life of Christ being lived out in our life through faith, which is why in order to have that experience, it says, I am crucified with Christ in Galatians 2.20. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the faith of Jesus. It's the third angel's message, and it's connected to complete surrender. Which is why Ellen White says in Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 366, God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. Are you surrendering to Jesus every day? Because that's where it all begins if we're going to have this revival of true godliness. Jesus is coming soon, friends. The world is crying out that the end of all things is at hand. You have 120,000 antelope dying over in somewhere near Russia. You have water turning to blood. You have the Pope saying it's time to heal this wound of division between Protestants and Catholics. I mean, what more do we need to see to, think, to be convinced that Jesus is coming soon? And yet we as Adventists continue to sleep this death sleep, thinking that the world will just continue as it will forever. Now is the time to wake up. 
And now as we see this general conference session coming, the likes of which we have never seen in our lifetime, now is the time to make sure that our lives are right with God, that we are spending quality time with Jesus every morning in confession and in humiliation and in repentance and in earnest prayer. Seeking God earnestly to receive this blessing of a revival of true godliness so that God, who is more willing to give good gifts to us than we as parents are to give to our children, can then pour out his spirit so that there can be a revival of primitive godliness such as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. And I'll tell you what, friends, I am praying earnestly that the Lord is going to do something that will put our jaws on the floor in San Antonio, that he is going to pour out his spirit upon all flesh, and that there will be no question that God is in control of this church, and that he is leading this church, and that we can trust him as the leader of this church. But let me tell you this, God is not going to do that if we as his people are not praying that he will do that for us. And so my urgent plea to each one of us this morning is that we will join together and cooperate with God to earnestly seek him so that the Lord will pour out a blessing on this church, on us individually and us as a body, so that we can move forward triumphantly, so that we can get off this planet. Amen. Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that you love us. And we thank you that you have sent us clear instruction in inspiration, showing us what our great need is. Lord, we ask for forgiveness for being satisfied with a form of godliness that has been lacking the power of God. And Lord, I confess in my own life that I've been this way. And I pray that we would all confess this and that we would humble ourselves before you and that we would have a genuine sorrow and turn away from a life of sin and rebellion and that we would experience the forgiveness and cleansing that you want to impart to us. May we learn, if we haven't already, to have an earnest prayer life where you can commune with us and point out the areas in our lives that need growth and change. And Lord, as we see the general conference session coming up, I pray earnestly that you will pour out your spirit upon each one of us and upon the delegates and upon everyone that is there so that you will do a mighty thing that we will know that you are in control of this church. And I just pray that you will be with us throughout the rest of this camp meeting. May you bless the other speakers as well. And may we leave this camp meeting ready to meet Jesus in the clouds of heaven is my prayer. In the name of Jesus, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.